Let's pray. Lord, what an honor and privilege to worship you this morning. We just, we need your help, Lord. So help us now to understand your word. Help us to see how you are the fulfillment, Lord, of every promise. And I just pray that you would open your word to us uh, more greatly than you ever have before. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17 is where we're going to start this morning. Um, But Matthew chapter 5, as I've studied Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, uh, I've begun to see how uh, it's it's quite magnificent. And uh, even just if you look at the the beginning here in Matthew chapter 5, you'll see that Jesus opens with the Beatitudes which are the postures of heart, we said, of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. So uh, these are the things that are going to characterize those who belong to Jesus Christ. And notice that, that they're primarily postures of heart, and there's a progression there that we talked about, um, uh, being poor in spirit. And then we mourn over our sins, which we, we become meek in heart. And then we hunger and thirst for righteousness, and we become merciful people, then people who are pure in heart. And we said that was the kind of the key, the climax there of God's internal work in our life, which then works out of us in being a peacemakers in the world, uh, which will ultimately then lead to persecution. But see, these are things that are, these are the postures of heart and the, the things in life that are going to characterize citizens of the kingdom of Christ. And then immediately after the Beatitudes is the portion on salt and light. So the goal of a transformed life, the goal of having the Beatitudes worked in the lives of Christ's people is so that we would be salt in the world, so that we would slow the decay of the world, and also that we would be light in the world, that we would shine the light of Christ into the darkness of the world. So insofar as the Beatitudes become the true postures of our heart and we're changed from the inside out, we will be salt and light in the world. And this is a very fitting opening If you think about it, uh, it's a fitting opening for the remainder of the sermon where Jesus will primarily talk about uh, how this should look in concrete instances and concrete examples, things to do and things not to do and and how to pray and and, and other things like that. Uh, The the way these postures of heart should work themselves out in our lives in concrete uh, situations. Okay, so the opening, I think, is very wise. It's very fitting. But before we get to more specific details, there's this little passage that we're going to talk about today. And it, it, it deals, I believe, with an urgent question, a question of vast importance. And I really believe that if we can understand what this section of Scripture means this morning, it's going to unlock the Scripture for you in a way that maybe you've never experienced before. Uh, Because what Jesus here is doing is he's explaining how he relates to the Old Testament. And of course, it may not seem as big deal to us, but but it's, it's, it's hugely important because Jesus comes and he's someone who comes who's clearly from God and he's speaking with a certain kind of, a new kind of authority, right? And, and, uh, in his life and his teachings, he made the religious leaders of his day mad enough to kill him over how he wasn't keeping their uh, traditions that they had placed around the law. 
And and just from a you know, just from our Christian perspective, we recognize that we as Christians, we don't keep the Old Testament law the same way that the that the Jews did and, and try to do today. Right? And so obviously something happened with the coming of Christ that it changed things. But the question though is is how did it change things? What what did it change? What what did Jesus come to do? How does how does he how does he how is he related to the Old Testament? And then how does that relate to the rest of what he's teaching us here? Is he if he's giving us something new? Is he giving us something different? Is he fundamentally changing things or is he carrying things on? These are these are huge questions and they're huge questions that relate to how you even read your Bible and how you connect the dots between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But I believe that if we can fit this together just in, the, the Bible will just be like an open treasure chest before us. And so that's what I'm going to talk about this morning is how Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise. The fulfillment of every promise. And we're going to read this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. And so if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse 17. He says, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The word of God you may be seated. So I have a sermon in a sentence for us here this morning. And the sermon in a sentence is this. The true and full meaning of the Old Testament is found in Christ, calling us to obedience from a transformed heart. The true and full meaning of the Old Testament is found in Christ, calling us to obedience from a transformed heart. So the first thing I want to do is go over the first part of that sentence. The true and full meaning of the Old Testament is found in Christ. Jesus said, do not think I've come to abolish the law or prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So we have to ask ourselves, what does this mean? And this is a thorny passage, and you know, commentators have been all over the place on this. But to explain, so the law or the prophets was really just a shorthand way to refer to the entire Old Testament. Okay, And as we said, everything recognized that something was different about Jesus and his refusal to follow their traditions and their sensibilities concerning especially the Sabbath, but other things uh, kind of got him on their bad side. And so, um, and so it, the, the question is, is of urgent importance uh, for, for understanding the Bible is how does Jesus relate to the Old Testament? Okay. And some might say, for example, that Jesus came to do away with the law by coming and asserting his own authority over and against the Old Testament law. But what Jesus says is that that's actually not the case. That's actually not what happens, okay? It is a complex relationship. So there's a complex relationship between Jesus and the Old Testament, okay? And 
we can't, I would say you can't fool, we can't fully understand Christ unless we understand that, okay? That Jesus isn't coming to abolish the law, he said. He's coming to fulfill it. Of course, Jesus had to say that because there would be people who saw what he was doing and would think that he had come to abolish it. But Jesus wants to be clear that that's not what's happening. Jesus did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. But of course, the million-dollar question is, what does he mean by fulfill? (laughs) What does that mean? What does it mean for Jesus to fulfill the law? I think the best way to understand it is is that the word fulfill here means the same thing that it means everywhere else in the book of Matthew when Jesus says that he came to fulfill the scripture. Okay? In the book of Matthew, this word, the same word fulfilled is used 16 times, okay, in the book of Matthew. So if we if we take out the one that we're looking at today from, from our consideration, that leaves, that leaves 15 uses, okay? Nine of those 15 remaining uses of, the, of that word fulfilled refer to Jesus's, of some aspect of Jesus' life fulfilling a specific prophecy or a specific Old Testament text or, or event, okay? So that's nine out of the 15. Then two more uses are found in Matthew 26, which speak of how, of, of how Scripture was fulfilled in Jesus' betrayal and arrest, even though it doesn't cite a specific passage. It just says generally Scripture was fulfilled in Jesus' betrayal and arrest. So what that means is that 11 out of the other 15 uses of, in the book of Matthew of the word fulfill refers to how Jesus is, the, is fulfilling certain passages of Scripture, fulfilling the Scriptures, okay? So... I would argue that the way to understand what Jesus means here, that he came not to abolish but to fulfill the scriptures, is to go look at the other places in the book of Matthew where it says he fulfilled it and see what Matthew means and what Jesus meant by the word fulfilled. And when you do that, what we see is that Jesus' fulfillment of scripture is complex. But it's important, and I I think it's understandable, okay? And we've already looked at some of the complexities before. So just uh, for example, in, 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 our, in a prior sermon, we talked about Matthew 1, 21 through 23, which says, uh, is a, is a uh, prophecy. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So... There are debates about what that specific passage in Isaiah means, but I think it's best to take it as a, as a basically direct future prophecy, okay? And understood in that light, then, what the way Jesus fulfilled that passage was direct prophecy fulfillment. So when we think of prophecy fulfillment, we typically think of they say something's going to happen, and then it happens, right? Prophecy fulfillment. Well, this is an example of that. Isaiah said that a virgin would conceive, and then... It happened, okay? It's, it, that's, that's, that's clear. It's direct prophecy fulfillment. But that's not the only way that Jesus fulfills Scripture. So in the very next chapter in the book of Matthew, which we already talked about, is when Herod tried to kill Jesus, and then they fled to Egypt, and then later they came back, back up out of Egypt. And if you remember, it says there in Matthew 2.14, it says, And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And if you remember back at that sermon, we talked about the complexity of that, right? Because that verse is a quotation from Hosea 11.1. 1. 
And if you remember, we said that if you go back and read the book of Hosea in chapter 11, that verse is in no clear way a prophecy. It's referring, it's, it's quite clearly actually referring to God's deliverance of the nation of Israel out of slavery from Egypt through the Exodus and through the Red Sea, right? And, and yet when Matthew goes back and reads his Old Testament and reads Hosea 11.1, 1, he doesn't just see the nation of Israel in that verse. He sees some kind of prophecy about Christ in that passage. And so we have to ask ourselves, what in the world is going, going on here? How can Matthew say that this passage was fulfilled in the life of Christ? And if you remember, in that sermon, y'all thought I made up this word. That's, that's called typological recapitulation, right? And what I said was that Jesus, what he's viewing is he's viewing Jesus' life as a typological recapitulation. A type is a picture or a foreshadowing of something, and then a recapitulation is just a redo. It's a do-over. Jesus' life kind of redid the life of, of, of Israel. He went, just as Israel went into Egypt, Jesus went to Egypt. Just as God brought Israel out of Egypt, God brought Jesus out of Egypt. But it's different because Jesus fulfills what Israel pointed to, right? God brought, out, God brought Israel out of Egypt to save a nation from their sins. God brought Jesus out of Egypt to save the world from their sins. So Jesus came to do in a greater way what God did in a lesser way with the nation of Israel. And so a picture, a picture is important, but it's important not because of the picture itself, but because of what the picture points to, right? A picture of my wife points me to the real thing. The picture is important, but it's important insofar as it represents a, a greater reality. And so if I'm looking at a picture of my wife and then she walks in the door, I don't keep staring at the picture. I put the picture down and I behold the reality. Okay? In the same way, the Old Testament, the whole Old Testament, not just direct prophecies, which there are some, but even historical events like the, like the Exodus and things like that, even historical events are pointing or a type of prophecy because they're pointing to something greater than themselves. Israel was a picture of God's son, but Matthew sees Jesus as truly God's son. And remember, there are other, and we saw other examples of this already in the book of Matthew. Remember how Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness tested by the devil? I mean, clearly that's no accident. Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness being tested. But just as Israel grumbled against God over their bread, Jesus was in the wilderness fasting, hungry, and yet he refused to misuse his divine power by making stones in the bread. And so Jesus, Jesus, in a sense, represents Israel, but he's greater than Israel because he didn't grumble against God when they did. He obeyed God. He trusted God when they did it and where, and where we did it. Okay? So in the same way, Jesus is fulfilling this picture that we get from the Old Testament, but Jesus is fulfilling it in a greater way. And so what does Matthew mean then by Jesus fulfilling Scripture? I, I say that, that everything in the Old Testament... Everything from direct prophecy to historical events to even specific Old Testament laws in some way, shape, or form find their ultimate meaning and purpose in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. 
The whole Bible is about Jesus. And so what I'm saying here is a new way, uh, you know, if you haven't heard this before, it's a new way of reading your Bible. I'm saying that the Jesus read, when Jesus read the Old Testament, he saw himself in the Old Testament. And so unless we read the Old Testament and see Jesus there, then we're not reading it correctly. You know, one of the most common rebukes that Jesus gave the religious leaders of his day, he said, have you never read? Have you never read? He understood that they should have understood the scriptures, but they didn't. Because why? Because they didn't see him in it. And that's why they rejected him. And so, to give a couple more quick examples of how this works, okay? Take the life of Joseph in the Bible, right? It's one of the, it's one of the most beloved stories in the, in the Bible about the life of Joseph in the end of the book of Genesis, okay? Now, notice, Joe, it's, it's, it's a real story, all right? It's, 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 it's what really happened to a Jacob's son named Joseph, okay? It's not in any clear way a prophecy, it's a historical narrative about what actually happened. But when you read the life of Joseph, what happened to Joseph? Well, he was his, he was his father's favorite son, who was what? Given an ornate robe to wear. Well, who wears ornate clothing? Kings. But he was what? Despised by his brothers. And what? Sold, in, sold, betrayed by his brothers for the price of a slave. And then he was later what? Condemned to the pit of prison for being righteous, for not sinning. He was condemned to the pit of prison. But then shortly after that, he was lifted up out of prison to the right hand of Pharaoh himself. Nothing in Egypt, uh, no power in Egypt withheld from him. All, uh, all, Joseph says later, for the purpose of what? From saving his family. God's chosen family from death, right? From the famine. And you read the story about the life of Joseph, and then you read the rest of the Bible, and you get to the Jesus Christ, and then you realize, wait a second. Joseph's, Joseph's life is not really about Joseph. Because who's Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is the beloved son of the Father, who was what? Who is appointed to be king, and, but he was betrayed by his brother, sold by his, one of his own disciples for the price of a slave. And he was condemned to the pit of death for his righteousness sake. And, but on the third day, he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, which is the full extent of the kingdom of God. And from heaven, he wields that power to save his people from their sins. And when you read the Bible, you realize, wait a second, Joseph's life, even though it really happened, wasn't even about Joseph. It was about Jesus. And you can't fully understand Joseph, Joseph until, you until you see Jesus in Joseph's life. What is Jesus saying? Jesus opens his Bible to the book of Genesis chapter 37, and he puts his finger on the page, and Jesus looks at me and you, and he says, this is about me. And you can't start to understand your Bible until you see Jesus in it. One more. How about the Passover? The Passover was instituted by God. It was the final plague of judgment on Egypt until they were set free from slavery. Okay? And what, 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 how did the Passover work? Well, 
Interestingly, in this final plague, God also implied to them saying, if you did not trust and obey this this, uh, practice here, you too would fall under the same judgment of your firstborn being struck down. But here's how you can be spared. You take a spotless lamb and you kill it. And then you take the blood and you put it on the doorpost of your house. And when the destroyer comes and he sees the blood, he'll pass over you. And you read that and you say, okay, that's interesting. What does that have to do with anything? You know, that doesn't really seem to be a prophecy per se until you get to the life of Jesus. And then you get to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, who the Bible says is the greatest old covenant person who ever lived. And he sees Jesus walking by and he tell, and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then you begin to realize that the Passover wasn't about the Passover. It was about the need of a pure, spotless sacrifice to cover and atone for our sins. And that if we come up under the blood of Jesus Christ by repentance and by faith in him, God will see the blood of Christ, as it were, applied on our hearts and not give us what we deserve. But pass over us in the judgment. And of course, it was that plague that did what? That set them free from Egypt. To do what? To journey to the land of promise. And if you have come up under Jesus' blood by faith and are covered in him so that God's wrath passes over you, you are now being taken on a journey by God to the land of promise. The new heavens and the new earth. So, Jesus opens his Bible And he opens his Bible to the passage of the Passover lamb. And he says, this is about me. It's about me. So what does it mean when Jesus says that he did not come to abolish the scripture, but to fulfill it? He's saying that the whole Old Testament, including the law and everything, pointed to something greater than itself. And so so what does that mean? It, it It means then that the relationship to the Old Testament is complex, right? It's complicated. In one sense... In one sense, it's wholly and completely authoritative because it is God's divine and chosen way to establish, if you will, pictures and types and shadows and images to give us so that when Christ came, we should have been able to recognize him. The Jews should have been able to recognize him from the Old Testament. It was God's authoritative way of doing that. And Jesus said, not an iota, not a dot will pass away until all is accomplished. Uh, an uh, iota stands for the, the Hebrew letter yod, which is, looks like an apostrophe. It's the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And, and, uh, and the, a tit or, or a dot there refers to like a serif, like if you're making fancy writing and you have a little flourish at the end of a letter just to make it look fancier. It's just a, a tiny little stroke of a letter. Okay? Jesus says not a single one of those will pass away until all is accomplished. In other words, and so in one sense, the Old Testament is completely, I mean, it's perfectly and completely authoritative. Everything in it points to Christ and everything in it will happen in fulfillment to Christ. And yet at the same time, it's complex because since, since everything in the Old Testament also pointed to something greater than itself... Since that's also true, it also means that Jesus comes as the fulfillment. And since he fulfills things that are greater than, that were pointing to something greater than themselves, when when the reality comes, you can put the picture away. 
And so what that means then is that it's, it's complex, that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. And in fulfilling, he didn't come to abolish it, he came to fulfill it. But in fulfilling it, it doesn't apply to us in the same way that it applied to Old Testament Jews because they lived in shadow and we're living in substance. They lived in, they lived in pictures, we live in reality. In fact, in Colossians chapter 2, uh, when... People were criti- when, some, when some people were criticizing Christians for not keeping certain details of the Old Testament law, this is what the Apostle Paul said in Colossians 2. He says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, because the Jews had strict dietary laws, right? Or with regard to a festival or new moon or Sabbath, because the Jews kept a strict calendar of, ho- of holidays and festivals. But he said this, These are a shadow of things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, since Christ has fulfilled these things, we're not obligated to keep them in the same way because they point into something greater than themselves. And so, um, and so the Old Testament points to a deeper reality. Christ is the substance. The Old Testament was outlines, but Christ is the completed portrait. So number one there is that the true and full meaning of the Old Testament is found in Christ. And then secondly... This calls us to obedience from a transformed heart. It call, it calling us to obedience from a transformed heart. Verse 19 and 20, it says, Therefore, whoever relaxes the least of one of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so what does this mean? All right, so these are thorny passages. I think to interpret this part, we have, to under, we have to take our understanding of what I just explained and apply it to this passage here. It's a little complicated because Jesus, Jesus just said, whoever relaxes one of these commandments will be called least. And you say, well, Pastor, it sounds like you're relaxing some of these commandments here by what you're saying. But I would say that, no, Jesus is, under, is understanding here that when as a fulfillment of the law, he's bringing the law, Jesus is bringing the law to its consummation. He's bringing the law to its height. So our obedience to the law in Christ is actually, in a sense, greater than it was in the Old Testament. Because we're living in the time of fulfillment. We're living the law the way it was intended to be lived. In the substance and not in the shadows. And so far from relaxing the commandments, even though Jesus does, in a sense, do away with what we might call some of the ritualistic requirements, even though he's doing away with them, it's not a relaxing of the law in Jesus' mind. It's a fulfillment of the law. Okay, and I'm going to explain to you how this makes sense. Consider how this passage goes with the rest of the chapter 5. Because Jesus said here... Jesus said, um, do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I didn't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then he gives examples of that. The first example is anger there in verse 21. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. Then he goes on to say, uh, um, uh, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And so do you see what Jesus is saying? What is Jesus saying? Did Jesus come to do away with the law which said do not murder? 
No, he didn't come to do away with it. He came to do what? To fulfill it. Well, what's the fulfillment of the law against murder? Jesus says, the law said, don't, do not murder. But I say to you, don't even be angry with your brother. What does that mean? It means the law, the command not to murder, pointed to something greater than just not murder. Right? You can, you, the law not to murder pointed to a day when people's hearts by the spirit would be so transformed that not only would it be unthinkable to, to murder someone, but we would so love our neighbor from the heart that we wouldn't even become unrighteously angry with our neighbor. In other words, the command not to murder would point it to something vastly greater than itself. And that is a heart so transformed that far from even murdering, you, it would be unthinkable to even be angry unrighteously with a neighbor. So what does that mean? Is, is Jesus relaxing the law? No, he's fulfilling it. And in fact, the fulfillment of the law goes further than the law itself could ever go because it deals with the condition of the human heart. The same example could be said about the command, um, about the command not to uh, commit adultery, right? You say, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, whoever lusts after a woman in his heart has committed adultery with her. So what is it saying? Is Jesus relaxing the law of adultery? No, he's fulfilling the law because the law not to commit adultery foreshadowed and pointed to a time, not just when the man wouldn't commit adultery with, so, you know, with someone who's not his wife, but to the point to where a man's heart would be renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ to where it wouldn't even occur to you to look at someone as a sexual object, but as someone who was created in the image of God who were to love and to serve. And all these things will ultimately become a reality when we're saved from our, completely transformed from our sins in the resurrection of the dead. But you see the point here is that the law is pointed to something greater. And so, and so this brings us to the final part where Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's astounding, isn't it? Because the Pharisees were the most religious people in that day, right? They're the most religious people in that day. It would have utterly stunned these, the listeners to think that they had to be more righteous than them to be saved. But see, when you understand what Jesus is saying here, it actually makes perfect sense. The Pharisees were externally righteous. Yeah, they didn't kill, they didn't murder people, but they hated people in their hearts. They didn't cheat on their wives, but they lusted after women in their hearts. They tied mint, dill, and cumin, but they were greedy in their hearts. And Jesus says, unless you're more righteous than that, you can't be saved. Unless your heart, unless your heart has been transformed by the power of God so that it doesn't matter if the outside of the cup is clean, if inside you're filthy. It doesn't matter. Unless you're more righteous than that, unless you're righteous from the heart, if you actually love people from the heart, love your neighbor from the heart, put your sin to death and try to love neighbor and, be, and have integrity, purity of heart, have the beatitudes at work in your life, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. Despite all their religious trappings, the Pharisees were worldlings at heart. And unless we're more righteous than that, you see, it just goes back to that, that simple principle. Religion can't save you. 
external sense of righteousness can't save you. Why? Because God can see straight to your heart. And unless we're more righteous, unless we have actual a purity of heart, a genuine change of heart to where God has made it, to where my my basic posture is toward God and others and not toward self, self, self. Unless that happens, we can never enter the kingdom. And so the true and full meaning of the Old Testament is found in Christ calling us to obedience from a transformed heart. And so as I close this morning, the question is very simple. Do you have a transformed heart? Does your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees? Do you love God and neighbor from a pure heart? Have you experienced the fulfillment of these things? Not just, yeah, people, you see what I'm saying? People say, well, I've never killed anybody. Well, see, that's what the Pharisees were saying. I never killed anybody. It doesn't matter. Has our heart been transformed to know and love God and neighbor from the heart? Do I do what's right in secret? Do I want what's good for other people even if it hurts me? Have I been transformed by the Spirit of God? If not, the solution is very simple. You can't do it. Only God can. If you turn from your sins and believe in Jesus Christ, the Bible says you will be saved. His Spirit will come and dwell in you and He will make you into what you could never make yourself a transformed citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning.